The following interview was recorded for CFRO The Pulse, Vancouver Co-op Radio's daily news show. The Pulse airs Monday to Friday at 7 a.m. on 100.5 FM and streaming live at coopradio.org. Today's part two of our conversation about the missing middle what it is, and how it can be one of the solutions to Vancouver's housing crisis. Our guest for today and yesterday is Bruce Hayden. Bruce serves on the board of Urbanarium. That's a nonprofit that looks at the design of cities, and they put out a report about these missing middle units and how the missing middle can help house people in our city. Yesterday, we aired part one. If you haven't heard it, go check it out. Bruce talked about why just adding more density won't solve our housing crisis how to rezone the city without inflating land prices, and how details like the minimum number of parking units required by law have a large impact on how many people we can house in the city. If you haven't yet heard part one, go check it out. I promise it's not just a conversation filled with housing jargon. I learned a lot from that conversation about how housing works in our city. And today is part two. It's also fascinating. We talk about co-housing, what it is, why having more co-housing could be useful to Vancouver, and what it would feel like to live in co-housing. We also get philosophical. We talk about what it means to be successful in life, what makes us happy, and how our vision of success shapes housing in this city. Here's part two. This brings us to another policy recommendation in the report that I wanted to ask you about, which is encouraging co-housing and intergenerational living. So two questions for you. One, what is co-housing? And two, what does it mean to encourage co-housing and intergenerational living? Does it mean to run a government PR campaign encouraging people to live with their aunts and uncles? What does it look like? Well, the most important important thing is actually to make it possible. So co-housing is uh, a relatively new new form of housing. It's not that new, actually, but it originated in Denmark. And the idea behind co-housing is pretty simple. Um, If you think about historically, we used to kind of live in a village where everybody had a small house and they would often cook together and, and eat together. So co-housing, people have smaller units and large common areas, and most of them have a scenario where you, you agree that you're going to take responsibility to cook, help cook a meal for the entire complex, say, once a week or twice a week or three times a week, depending on how it's structured. So that has a bunch of advantages. One, it means people don't have to spend as much money on kitchens. Uh, it means um, you don't necessarily need, not everybody needs to have a power washer or something like that. So it can be absolutely provide cheaper housing, which is one. But the other really important thing is it actually supports social connection. If um, you talk to children that grew up in co-housing, almost every child who grew up in co-housing said that they would not want to raise a child in anywhere else. And to be clear, when we talk about co-housing here, we're not talking about co-op housing. No, a co-op is a legal term. And a co-op simply means that, it, that in simplest term, it's, it's housing that's owned in common. So that if I have a, yeah, it's not a strata, it's like I have a share of an entire building and that share has an association of a right to do it. But there are many different co-ops. Co-op is a very good model, by the way. I'm not saying anything against co-ops at all. Um, but um, the, the advantage of the co-housing model is that, there, is that it really does allow people, whether they're intergenerational or, or not, to have a greater degree of community support. Um, 
one of the ways I think about this is that uh, I live in a small uh, townhouse complex in East Van. It's not co-housing, but we have a shared backyard and things like that. And one of the ways I think about this is I really want the kind of place where if I'm in trouble, let's say I fall and break my, break my hip, whatever. Um, I'm not a young man anymore. Um, I want my kids to be able to go and knock on anybody's door and get help and to know anyone. And that's a really important social value. What's so often in market housing, you look at all real estate advertising, it really isn't based on those things at all. It's not based on knowing your neighbors. It's based on status to add marble countertops. And it's based on control. That in fact, I'm not going to run into my neighbors all the time. I really, I, the nice thing about co-housing is it kind of makes that more formal where, where literally there's easy childcare, there's easy sharing of resources. And there's just that kind of day-to-day human connection, which we know makes people healthier, not just mentally healthy, but physically healthy. We know people who have good daily contact with other people are, will live longer. So Bruce, what does it take? Is that, is co-housing a legal form of development in Vancouver now? And if not, what would it take to get there? Um, so they, there's certainly been a number of pilot projects. It's actually a good question. I don't know. I think that they, they haven't yet yet incorporated co-housing into the zoning bylaw, but I'm not absolutely sure about that. I know that there are some that are under construction. Um, one of the challenges of going back to Mr. Middle is you do need to make co-housing work. You need to be more than like five or six families. You need to have you know 20 to 30 is a good number. So uh, it's more on the scale of a smaller scale apartment building, but there are a number of great examples. Um, and uh, uh, some good friends of mine are actually have some of their uh, have a co-housing unit under construction. They're going to be moving into it. We need more of that type of housing, um, and people are afraid of it because it's an unusual model. I mean, so much opposition to this kind of thing comes because people just haven't experienced it. And so when people say co-housing, we go, "What's that?" And in fact, there's an amazing TED talk actually from a woman in Seattle about co-housing. It just talks about the quality of her life and the quality of her children's life living in co-housing because she knows her neighbors and it's safe and it has shared, uh, you know, has shared resources. So the policy recommendation I'm hearing is for us to encourage co-housing. So could you, you've talked a lot about what co-housing means to you, but could you go back again to what that means to encourage it on a governmental level? Well, the most important um, thing to encourage things on, on, on governmental is really to allow them to happen and not let the rules get in the way. One of the problems is that we've tended, uh, legislatures often usually based on good, well-intentioned, thoughtful citizens have started to say, well, there's this type of housing, there's this type of housing, there's this type of housing. And so they write the rules um, based to do, uh, achieve certain, accompl- uh, certain goals with those rules. And the problem is that as soon as you're trying to do another type of housing, you come up very quickly against the challenges associated with these rules. And this sounds geeky and stupid, but it's actually not um, because all rules have some cultural biases in them. They have, um, uh, they, they, they have lots of implications. And the other problem that happens is when rules kind of layer on top of each other, um, they, they get worse. And, and I do think it can. I'm absolutely proud Canadian, but we do tend to have this, this thing about um, if there's a problem, what we need is some more rules. Um, and, and part of what needs to be done, and it's often challenging from a government perspective, is to look at the rules that actually stop things happening. And that's the purpose of rules often. We're going to stop monster houses. We're going to stop um, um, uh, too much traffic on the street, all those kinds of things. So 
Uh, and the problem with something like co-housing is that the rules are often written without that kind of housing in mind and they make it impossible. You know, I think that um, one, one concern, if not a hesitation, at least one thing that I can see being a factor here, Bruce, is that um, is how important it will be to get folks of different backgrounds around the table when we are coming up with zoning changes that allow for co-housing or intergenerational mm-hmm. living. Um, and I mean, and this is true of all uh, laws and bylaws and policies, and I'm not saying anything novel here, but I mean, I just think about examples such as folks who, um, you know, who, folks now who are, who are low income and aspire to a single family home, and they'll be absolutely thrilled and delighted to get to that place. And then to have zoning or bylaws that change their ability to do that mm-hmm. or folks who are already at that level and have really worked hard to aspire to be there and then to have that change on them uh, would be difficult for folks. Part, part of what you're talking about, I think, is, is how do people define success? And if you think about it, the, 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 you know, the, there's a classic joke about the suburban white picket fence. And it's not that we want to kind of eliminate that kind of housing. And it's not that we want to say, oh, you, sh- you should live in a, in a particular way. But we do need to acknowledge certain things. One is that we are in a planetary environmental catastrophe. And one of the challenges of being in a planetary environmental catastrophe is that all of us will have to contribute to solving that catastrophe. One of the villains in, pl- in planetary environmental catastrophe is the single family house. And it's a tough thing to say, but it is a reality. Part of it is sprawl. Part of it is it's very inefficient from an energy use. It's the, um, the most environmentally expensive way to house people. So we shouldn't eliminate it. We shouldn't say nobody should live in that. But some of it is we have to have a conversation as well as what what does status mean? And we've been sold a bill of goods by the real estate agency that, that I am more successful if I own more square footage. And that's a real tragedy because the reality is from a health perspective, and these are measurable, this isn't just BS. It's a measurable outcome. From a health perspective, I'm actually more successful if I'm better connected to my community. And yes, there are many single family neighborhoods that are really good at, at, at connecting each other with community and not all. And so some of it is about that, is about making decisions about what we value. And yes, we have a fantasy, everybody should have a single family house, and it's actually unfortunately not gonna be the case. Um, and the places where that's true, if you look at places like Houston or Dallas, where you've got you know, thousands and thousands of square kilometers of single family houses, absolutely, that's a model of making a city. I don't think it's a model of making a city that we want here, because that would mean we wouldn't have a Fraser Valley, for example. I think now, Bruce, would be a good time to move on to the competition aspect of the Missing Middle report. Urbanarium asked teams to put together plans for missing middle housing types. And tell us a little bit about why this competition was important and what we learned from the winning entries. Sure. Um, there are many, there's a long history of architectural com- competitions, and, and some of the competitions I would describe as as let's make the most visually exciting building ever. Right? I call it the buildings on sticks competition. Like let's make it super cool. We actually challenged the competitors to do something very different. We said, for example, that we wanted to see the numbers. We actually asked them all to do what's called a pro forma, which is a fundamental financial modeling of how this could work. We knew that not all of those were gonna be realistic, but part of the thing we had um, during the jury process is we actually had people look at those numbers to see whether there was some substance. Are they actually thinking about it, digging, digging into it deeply? 
so that it doesn't just become a fantasy project. So part of what we were looking for was, project, could you actually make these things real? And we asked the competitors to suggest exactly a conversation you might be having. What, what are the rules that would help make this possible? So people looked at a bunch of, they looked at the finances, they looked at the kinds of housing they were provided. Could you have small, smaller single, single suites that would be like for our grandmothers, like that kind of process. So, and one of the reasons that the, um, that Hex City, which was the, the overall winner and what we call the Planners Prize winner, which was separately awarded as well, was they really just addressed all of this in a real visceral, down-to-earth way. Yes, the buildings were beautiful, but they weren't just beautiful. You could imagine these, these as the kind of buildings that you could live next door, door to. And they looked at it across a whole chunk of the city, which we also asked people to do. How would you make this not just a single kind of boutique? Because this is the problem, is that you can go over and say, oh, there's this cool project over here, so we've got the problem solved. They said, Let's, how do we make this bigger? For folks who can't see the beautiful images in the report right now over radio, maybe you can describe for me, if I were living in the complex that won the prize, what would it look like? What would it feel like? Well, probably the easiest um, thing to imagine is instead of, a, uh, instead of a backyard, you'd have a courtyard. So and that courtyard might have parts of it that are private and parts of it are shared, but, but we would take a, you know, if you think about a typical street in Vancouver where you've got a bunch of green space and you've got a house and then you've maybe got a Langley house in the back. Most of the, most of the winners at some point said, well, let's take over some of that green space in the front and put shared space in between on that wasted space in between so that you could actually have a unit facing on the lane, units facing on the front, and maybe two or three units facing the lane and two or three units facing on the back. And in a lot of conversation about how the how how those 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 different street aspects. So it's not just a single house facing a single street with a back. You're kind of using all of the street addresses, and you're creating more shared spaces. And yes, still lots of green space, but not as much as we have now in the single family neighborhood. And maybe the houses were going to be a little bit taller, not hugely taller, just a little bit taller than they are now, which would allow you to get, say, a full three floors, maybe three and a half floors of housing in there, which just lets you use the land in a much more efficient way. So the best way to think about it is that, that yes, you're going to have, some, you're going to have uh, a good privacy, but you're going to also have more shared spaces, more courtyard spaces, and less open lawn spaces. So, Bruce, what needs to change in a regulatory sense for that vision to come to fruition? Well, it's all of the things we've talked about before. It's looking closely at parking regulations. It's looking closely at setback and height. But some of the implications of your questions really are about how do we change our thinking about the cultural challenges? And some of it is just going into that basic thing of human expectation. You know, and how do we define success? For me, for example, I want to live in a city where I have a whole range of neighbors. I want my kids to grow up in a place, and we're lucky we do. We live in Strathcona, which has a huge range of incomes, which is really important, and a huge range of diversity. So they get to see all of the options of living your life. And I think that that's a really, really important thing. And that, for me, has real value. I could choose to live. I've got a good in. I could choose to live in a single-family neighborhood. And I love walking out the door and saying hi to my neighbors all the time. It makes my life better. So some of this is having these broader scale conversations about how do people use resources and what is really meaningful about the life you want to live. And I want to live a life that where I'm connected with my neighbors and where people that make my life better, people that teach yoga, people that run coffee shops, people that work 
in public service that maybe don't have huge incomes get to live next door to me and my kids. And that's what we really need. It's astonishing how difficult it is to change rules. I mean, you know, it's still, uh, it's almost impossible to open a corner grocery store, for example, you know? And if you think about all the neighborhoods that have great corner grocery stores, um, they're great neighborhoods by and large, but can you do a new one? No. And some of that is history. And I think that we are at a different period of how the city is developing. And I think the city is maturing. Um, so I'm very optimistic, but it does require some bravery. And inevitably, it will require being willing to take on some people who've, um, who will be opposed to any change at all. And fear of change is a normal human thing. It's absolutely a normal human Bruce, maybe I'll ask you this. We know that there is no single solution to Vancouver's affordability Absolutely crisis, not. and the missing middle conversation is one key piece of many key pieces. Mm. How much benefit do you think the missing middle conversation will bring to Vancouver's housing crisis? Well, some of it, um, I, I, I think that it's, it's what we often want to do is, is measure the benefit in financial ways. Um, and I think that the, what I've said is that I think the benefit is, is not always financial, is that what we need to do is to build a city where access to housing is seen as a fundamental right. And we have to change the attitude that, that um, uh, we have to see that as a benefit to everybody. You know, when I think of one of the, the, the things about the pandemic that is really brought into focus is the incredible value of the essential service workers that surround us all the time and the kind of gifts that they give to the city, the hard work they give to the city. And the nature of economics is such that, that, that those are often gonna be economically challenged roles. If we can't find a way to find housing for them, then we have failed as a culture. The other benefit is that there's real key wins for a bunch of different things. For example, it's impossible to good transit at the scale of single family housing. You simply can't have the frequency without subsidizing transit in a massive way. So one thing is better transit. The other is better social connectedness. The other is schools that actually have enough people in them so they don't get closed down. So there are some real visceral benefits. Um, and again, I consider myself to an enormously privileged lifestyle because I step out on the street and I see an extraordinary variety of people. And I know my kids get exposed to this extraordinary variety of people. And so they have a sense of resilience and they know how to deal with a ton of different people from people who leave needles in the park next to our house to people who are quite wealthy. And I think that um, what we, we've done such a terrible, terrible job of, or we've created so much social isolation between different classes, between different income levels, between different genders, between different races. And housing is real opportunity to start to bridge those gaps in a positive way. And I know I sound kind of overly optimistic about it, but I genuinely feel that um, if we don't do a better job about creating a more equitable city, then we all lose. It's not just a case that there's more winners and losers, that everybody loses, because we get a culture that's, that, that is less resilient to things like pandemics. Bruce, thank you so much for your time today and for your work. You're very welcome. Thank you for your time as well. And that was Bruce Hayden. Bruce serves on the board of Urbanarium, and we talked about how building missing middle homes can help with Vancouver's housing crisis. This was part two of our two-part conversation. If you haven't yet checked out yesterday's episode, go do it. And also while you're at it, check out Urbanarium's video on the missing middle. Just go to YouTube and search for video producer Yutae Lee, that's U-Y-T-A-E Lee, or search for 
the missing middle. And that's it for today. You're listening to The Pulse on CFRO, your super local morning news show here on Vancouver Corp Radio 100.5 FM. I'm Tan Macy. And as always, please tell us what you think of the show. I'm at Macy at coopradio.org. That's M-E-I-X-I at coopradio.org. Ciao. Take care. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada.